Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both the movies Burning and Vox Lux and I'm happy to be joined again by my friend Ben Lubin who joined me on the Old Men and the Gun podcast a couple months ago. Ben, how's it going? Uh, great, Josh. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad you're able to join me because uh, you saw the you saw Burning uh, a little while ago, and I looked, and I knew you had a lot to say about it. But I'm happy you were still willing to do this anyway, despite the fact that it probably isn't as uh, fresh in your mind as it is in mine. But I know it left quite an impression on you, so I figured you'd be yeah. a good per- you, it figured you'd be a good person to talk about it with. So for anyone that doesn't know, and I, I think we'll be able to like have a little jumping off point at some point in this where we can just kind of talk about the end in case. Other people haven't seen this movie and are just kind of curious what it's about. Burning is a South Korean movie by the director uh, Lee Chang Dong. It is, uh, I guess, adapted from like a short story from the early 80s that was actually Japanese, and he kind of made it his own South Korean thing. It and, is and it isn't. Oh, okay. Um, it's, so quick, quick note on that. Yeah. It's technically adapted from two separate stories. Gotcha. Okay. Um, one of which is a Haruki Murakami story, which is the one that you were talking about. The other is a story by William Faulkner. Ah, and that actually is a kind of ties into the part of the movie itself, ironically enough, uh, because our main character Jong Su is like a twenty-something South Korean guy. He's kind of from a meager background, works odd jobs and stuff like that. He's an aspiring writer though, and uh, Faulkner is his favorite writer. And there's some more tie-ins to, I guess, to that uh, Faulkner story uh, later on in the movie. But he's just kind of he's walking around Seoul one day, and he happens to run into a, a woman that recognizes him. Her name's Hey Me, and she says that they grew up in the same uh, smaller village outside of Seoul. He has no recollection of her. Uh, she actually remembers that at one point they had a not-so-pleasant interaction when they were younger where he called her ugly, but again, he has no recollection of it. They, they connect. Uh, they, they sleep together, and she asks him, hey, you want to watch my cat while I'm gone for a couple weeks? And as a guy uh, who is uh, enthralled by a woman he's just met. Of course, he's going to watch her cat. And while she goes to Africa for a couple of weeks, uh, when she, he meets her when she comes back from Africa, she's accompanied by a guy named Ben, who is played by Stephen Yen. And since uh, Ben, who is in this conversation with me, his name is Ben, for simplicity's sake, we're just going to refer to the other guy as Stephen Yen. He is a, but the character's name is Ben. He's wealthy, well-off, very, very cultured. And uh, she has, obviously has, Hamey obviously has some kind of attraction to him. And that's kind of where the movie goes from there, where these characters have an uncomfortable kind of triangle going on, and they're all feeling each other out. And we're wrong for the ride as it turns into a thriller of sorts. Um, and there, there are a lot of ways to talk about this movie, and it, and it does a, and it kind of deals with a lot of different things. So I, I want to keep it big picture to start, Ben. I mean, I, I know you did quite enjoy this movie. What was like the one thing that really did it for you, or did you have like one big takeaway right after you saw it that was like, man, like Lee Chang, Lee Chang Dong, like he got this right. Um, well, yeah. So one thing that I, I do think is important because it, it has been a while since I've seen the movie. Yes. Um, and I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, but I, I live in L.A. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about living in L.A. is a lot of the time you get advanced screenings. Yeah, and in this case, Mr. Fancy uh, Pants the, over here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm going to be rubbing my L.A. privilege all yeah. over you every time we do this podcast. But yeah. uh I, specifically, I saw it with uh, the director, Lee Chang Dong, doing a Q&A afterwards. Oh, okay. I didn't realize um, that was how you saw it. That's cool. Yeah. No, and that's something I, I may bring into because I – Were any of the actors there? No. Oh. Uh, and But I do want to talk – like that is something I, I want, I'm going to bring into, especially when we talk about Stephen Young, because there's a lot of insight he gave into 
Stephen Young's character that like it kind of brought that character to another level for me. Okay. But I, I guess like uh, above everything, what I loved about the movie is it avoided answers. Um, I am much more interested in movies that raise questions, that probe out the complexities, the ambiguities, the things that are necessarily impossible to understand about the world and the way we experience it than I am about movies that provide easy answers. And this is a movie that very much did that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that maps out so many separate ambiguities, misunderstandings, and just questions that we have and that are inherent to our lives that we don't necessarily realize are there. Uh, beyond that, technically speaking, it was a monumentally brilliant movie. Um, I mean, the, the, the use of oneers, the cinematography, the use of soundtrack, I mean, just every, everything about the movie was immaculate in a way that even if you're not a formalist, like even, even if kind of formal perfection in a movie isn't the thing you go out of your way to, like, to, to look for, mm-hmm. it is striking in this movie. Uh, it, it's clear that Li Chang-dong is just an incredibly talented, incredibly masterful filmmaker. Had you seen either of his other previous two movies? No. And it's it's funny because when I saw this movie, it was originally playing with in a double bill with his movie Secret Sunshine. Okay. And my original plan was to stay for both. But after walking out of Burning, I just – I wanted to let it sit with me more. Yeah. And I just – I didn't I, – I felt so struck by the movie that I didn't want to kind of lay something else on top of that. I just wanted to kind of sit with this movie and think about it and live in it for a little bit longer. Yeah, and I, I like that that was kind of one of your bigger points is that it doesn't give you a ton of answers. And I don't know if we're necessarily spoiling anything by saying that. I'll, I'll save the bigger plot spoilers for the end. But like I think the biggest thing about this movie was that like more so than a lot of movies that I see, it, it's, it's, a, it's a movie about how – it asked the question like how well can you really know any person and i guess there are a lot of movies that you might see where like characters are trying to deceive each other and they're they're lying to each other and their characters might try and figure out if another character is lying to each other and what's the consequence of that but like i feel like this movie it just focuses so much on like the discomfort with not knowing someone in your life and it I don't know. I feel like you you just kind of sit with that uncertainty more in this movie, and how it's it's mostly told through, pretty much exclusively told through Zhang Su's perspective. But you're you're kind of with him as he is just like it's eating away at him about the fact that he he doesn't know what he can think about these people in his lives. And I, I I can't really think of another movie that I've seen that is more focused on that specifically as opposed to maybe a lot of other th- plot points that could get in the way of a movie where it's just everything kind of just builds off of that where he just doesn't know what to make of these people and it is driving him crazy yeah and it's one of the questions i actually wanted to pose to you josh mm-hmm. uh especially because it's a little fresher in your mind yeah how much of the movie do you think was real uh well, well that, 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 that's real a, that's within a, that's, the... a, that's a loaded question for this movie because yeah i mean do I think – I mean there's one thing where it's like – I don't know. I think I think just about everything happened. I mean I, I guess in theory like I, I hadn't had that thought exercise exactly. I, I guess I maybe might have thought of it at one point because you're wondering how much the character of Jong Su is like creating different scenarios in his head that must not be true and what you're supposed to think about that because some people thought that like I, – I, I mean I think people have had different reads on it where it's like uh, – at one point in the like when 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 he is trying to figure track down hey me some people thought like oh well he thinks that 
he thinks that Stephen Yang killed her, and that's what some people kind of thought might have been what happened. Whereas other times, he, I, I, I almost took it as well. Maybe he's just like suspicious and thinks they're just having a relationship behind his back, and that's what's going on. And I, I, I was kind of like doing a little bit of a choose your own adventure in my head, but I don't know. I think I thought that for the most part, though, it was all happening, and we were just supposed to be kind of getting in his head and second guessing all along. Was there were, were there any Past that, were there any tells throughout the movie where you thought, huh, maybe this isn't even actually happening? Well, so uh, part of the reason why I asked it like that is there are so many contradictory pieces of information were given in the movie. Yep. There are so many like different events that happen that it, it's impossible for both to be true. It's impossible to reconcile Hamie's memory of the past with, uh, again, I'm a Apologies for the character names not being as fresh. Jung Su. Yes. So, yeah. For with, it's impossible to re- to reconcile Hamie's version of the past with Jung Su's. It's impossible to reconcile, especially when we're we meet other characters who have further conflicting memories of the past. Jung Su's mother, who conveniently appears out of nowhere, and that's something I want to touch on at some yeah. point. And what I think you have to remember, and this is something that problematizes the coherency of the narrative even more in a way that I appreciate. Jung Su is a writer. And especially at the end when we see him writing, there there is a lot there there there, there are questions raised in the movie. How much of this is what is happening? How much of this is Jiang Su trying to create something interesting within his life, trying to create this conspiracy, trying to create this interesting thing, this subject matter, which is something he talks about a need for earlier in the movie. How much of this is him trying to create a an interesting narrative for his life? And I don't think we have an easy answer to that, and I don't think we're supposed to. But there are a lot of different possibilities raised. There are a lot of different questions raised. And I think... Like Li Cheng Dong is very conscious about how much he avoids giving us the type of answers that would allow us to create a coherent sense of what did or did not happen. Hmm. We're not meant to have an answer. Yeah, so I, I see what you're saying, though. Like, I mean, you, 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 that 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 is a constant throughout the movie, where you are constantly learning new things. That and 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 you, I, I just I, for the most part, though, I just kind of took it as someone someone's lying and he's not going to tell us who. And we just have to think of that for ourselves. I guess I guess that's how I took it, and I didn't I didn't get, I, I guess I didn't question any the reality of what was happening on the screen so much as what was behind every single thing that was said, which was an interesting way to watch a movie for me. And like I, I liked that it had that effect on me, but I guess I didn't quite go as so far as to like question any of the actual events and whether or not they were just in Jong Su's head. Yeah, I mean that's 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 how I took it. Um, and and again, I that's the type of thing I like. Mm-hmm. I like. This is beyond movies. I like works of art that disintegrate and problematize the way we view things that we're previously certain of. And if you look at all of the ways, like this movie creates ambiguity. It creates Mm -hmm. ambiguity in personal memory. It creates ambiguity in history, understanding of the world around us, understanding of the political situation around us. Understanding of person-to-person relationships, and oh. that I think is the major one. Oh, that whoa, it, it, whoa, it, whoa, whoa, what I'm forgetting now. Sorry to cut you off. Like, I, yeah, I, no, I, no problem. I just totally forgot the the whole sequence of the movie because I, I I got a little tired at one point, and like I I think I I don't want to say I zoned out, but like it just wasn't as fresh as the rest of the movie in my head was was the sequence where like he is trying to kind of backtrack 
back trace back his steps after Hamie first kind of goes off the grid and he goes back to her apartment and one of the the landlady or the super or whoever it is tells him yeah there was never there was never a cat there that yep. that, that that that's now 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 that's coming back to me and it it, it is like the, the cat for a second. is a big oh yeah the cat is the huge. type of like contradictions that the movie introduces yeah and, and then, especially and, based on something that happens at the end of the movie that I'm not going to spoil at this point yeah so like I mean I don't know because I mean I, obviously if he's like it's not like one of these characters doesn't exist as a whole. He obviously sees her, but it's like, who knows? Maybe he's just like, uh, maybe he's just like coming back to her apartment because he is like somewhat infatuated with her. And maybe it was just a one-time thing, and he created a lot more of it in his head. And who knows? Like, like they did sleep together, and maybe like the the cat thing was actually a joke. Uh, that like she, maybe she was interested in him enough just to want to sleep with him once, and didn't think much more of it than that. And because there there is a joke where like before they actually sleep together, where she's like, "Oh yeah, so uh, you're not going to tell anyone that I made up the cat or something like that." And she says it like a joke. So maybe he just like maybe he did actually create that in his head. Or I mean, I, I guess I was taking it a little literally at first, where I'm like, "Oh, so did, how did he create a litter box?" But maybe that was really in his head, and he really did think he was emptying a litter box when he wasn't. I guess you don't really know. Well, also, it's it's not that he was like hallucinating or anything like that, but it's worth seeing this narrative and we're seeing these other possible stories and fictions mapped out onto the world mm. and that's something that we do like that's something that people do like kind of the the situation and you see you see him sleeping a decent amount too and is laying around his house and there's a good chance yeah. he was just hanging out at that house a lot more than we realized and like you said maybe some of this was in his head and i i it just well, it just now kind of it just now kind of clicked for me after i remembered the cat thing <laughs> yeah and i think kind of the key here is all of these are possibilities right like you can't actually again you cannot create a mapped out like breakdown of this is what happened this is what didn't happen we're not it, it's not possible to do that and anyone who tries to do that and tries to create that certainty for themselves uh is going to end up with uh for you're going to drive yourself anyone, crazy if you, if you you're going to drive yourself crazy you're going to end up with like a a, a charlie kelly-esque bulletin board <laughs> conspiracy-esque blah 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 um no it's, it's it's like you cannot create a genuine and perfect map of what didn't didn't happen and i think that's kind of perfect and i think that is a much more effective way to explore the ambiguities and the alienations we have from things within our own lives well in this we've like we've already mentioned this story is fairly exclusively told from jong su's point of view how much do you think i mean because i think i think a good chunk of this movie or i think one of the driving themes behind it at least for me what i t- what i attached to it was just loneliness and yeah, i mean this guy is absolutely. he is hanging out on this farm <laughs> quite a bit by himself like he, he's i guess he's right when we meet him at the beginning of the movie he's like about to move out to this farm he's been i guess presumably living somewhere around seoul but he's having to go take over his dad's farm because his dad is uh, unfortunately in trouble with the law and he is just out there a lot i mean he has this very brief encounter with Hamie, and i'm sure that jolts him out of his loneliness because i think we're led to believe he doesn't have a lot of friends it doesn't seem to have a lot going off on in life yeah. until that happens, and you're, you probably are going to kind of – I mean maybe if you do reach some kind of level of loneliness combined with a fairly damaged past as it appears that he has, like you are going to maybe create scenarios in your head and – I don't know. And, and that well, again, he, 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 is, he is a writer who does not have anything to write about. Yeah, that, 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 that's and, a whole other can of worms. <laughs> Um, I mean, early in the movie, he's he's like talking about this need for material. He's talking about this need for just something to write about. And he's even told, why don't you write about your father? He does not have anything within his own life that actually 
really conserves the foundation for for his writing. Well, that's he, why he he wants to write fiction. Well, he wants to write fiction, but also he it's it's that it's an there's an entitlement there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to be a great writer. He wants to be seen as a great writer, but first off, he doesn't have anything to write about, and he doesn't have the really the imagination, at least in what we're given within the movie, to write about things that he's not experienced. So he has like so the possibility there is he creates he creates a more interesting narrative of his own life. Huh. This yeah. girl he had a chance encounter with becomes this lost, disappeared love who it kind of rap brings him into this conspiracy laden search for her. And how, how, and, how does how, how does Stephen Yen then factor into that? You think? I mean, I guess it's just making this love triangle even more thrilling than it, it actually otherwise might be. Right? Stephen Yoon is pro- is for me the most Yoon so. ambiguous. Yoon Stephen Yoon is is for me like the most ambiguous character in the movie. Oh, for and that, sure. How, like so much. You can project a lot onto him. You can project a lot onto him, and there and this is actually something I wanted to uh, go back to the Q and A. I yeah, I went to um. So Lee Chang Dong was talking about how for him the character Ben was the hardest nut for him to crack. Uh, and it all came together when he cast Steven Yoon because they were talking about it. They were talking about the character together. And the thing Yoon brought into it is this character, there's an emptiness inside him. And I remember when I was first starting to make it as an actor, I felt like I, I had money. I had opportunity. I had privilege within my life. And I suddenly felt alienated from the people around me. I didn't care about anyone. I just felt empty inside. And Ben, the character, is that character. And in that conversation, the character came together for both Stephen Yeun and Lee Chang Dong. Hmm. And that, like, what Yoon brought to him, that was so interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean for someone like me that just hadn't heard that 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 cast the character almost in another light because i mean well actually you can tell that he is fairly empty because you are there are these scenes where he is having gatherings at his house and he seems like he's with a lot of friends that he should be just like kind of living up life with he obviously has a lot of money he lives in a a bomb ass apartment and he uh and, and it looks like they're having like these really fulfilling interesting discussions talking about um just the world and there are a few moments where the camera glimpses at him and he could not appear to be more disinterested. And that kind of jibes with what you're telling me. It does. And also uh, this kind of more questions I have for you Mm -hmm. at any point in the movie, is it directly stated that Steven Yeun's character was in a relationship with Haimi. It's alluded to. No, but no. Was it ever directly stated? Yeah, no. I was going to bring that up because, I mean, that was the that was the one thing I kind of thought about where it's like even now that I'm, as I'm talking to you about it and I thought more about the cat food thing, like I get how some of this stuff might not have happened. But even even putting that possibility aside, you, you aren't told that. You are very explicitly not told that. And, and that was kind of what I was getting at where it's like not not just the unknowability of people but like – the fact that, like, when you are already when you ha- have the relationships with these people to the extent that Jong Su does, like, it's gonna it's gonna drive you up a wall because he's gonna make that assumption. But as the like as the as someone just like watching this movie, like, you know, there's actually that's not confirmed. You know, he no, might, if he, anything, I think it's possible to make a queer reading of the movie. To make a what in the movie? A queer reading of the movie. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, again, this is not something that's directly stated, and it's more something that is 
played with, then it, it, it's never explicitly stated. But there is a dynamic between Jung Su and Stephen Yeun's character. I'm just gonna call him Stephen Yeun because, yeah, no. like, I, can't, I know I can't say my own name and like, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is a dynamic between Jung Su and Stephen Yeun that could be called flirtatious, um, especially. Coming from Steven Yeun, if there is anyone that he has that type of dynamic flirtatious chemistry with, it's not Hey Me. Well, probably not. And like I, I left the movie very explicitly thinking like there's a good chance they never actually were intimate at all, uh, Steven Yeun and Hey Me. And but at the same time, there is so many, and that's what's so great about that performance. I mean, I I, I think you said it. Um, you, you, you told you told you told me and some of our other friends like after you saw it that like he was like your lead for best supporting actor. If you just had to, he still is for the record. Yeah, and like I mean, and what I think is why I don't think that's a, a crazy statement to make was because I think there is just like there are so many ways to read that performance, and which well, is, it's, which it's is also that he's expected to play a character in so many different ways because again, the character is different things at different times. Right. He needs to like. But it all stays consistent and all feels real, oh, despite sure. the fact that, again, if you were to make a map of everything the character is, every way the character acts throughout the movie, he is a mass of contradictions. Yeah, exactly. And it, there, there, one way to read him, though, is just to think, like, he, he knows a lot. I, I don't know. Are, are you supposed to assume he had no idea that um, jong was following him around? Again, at certain points in the movie you are at certain points in the movie you aren't there are times where it's kind of alluded that he knows the game jong is playing with him yeah um and he's playing right back and he's le- he's specifically leading him towards these situations that like lead the game on when he brings it back to his apartment yeah but well so like when again, you're talking about like possibly like having like a, a queer reading on it like there are moments where i can see that and then there are moments where it, it just more feels like he he is he is screwing with him and like what the, well, from- it is but there there are so basically, there there are ways to kind of talk about kind of the the way men interact in movies and kind of dynamics that aren't necessarily explicitly sexual that are still queer. Okay. The way he plays with him, it, it is very easy to make a queer reading of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something I want to spend too much time on. I'm honestly not the best person to talk about it. Yeah, we're two straight uh, white dudes. Probably shouldn't be it, where we yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Um, but it, it's more just I, I wanted to raise the point that it is very possible to make that reading. Right. And I think it's something that is not – you're not being disingenuous by making that reading. Yeah, but I mean I, I kind of get what you're saying where at the same time because because that performance is able to be so many things at once. It plays right into the idea that like and, – and again, I guess we originally were, went down that rabbit hole because you asked me about like the movie never actually showing him and Hamey in a relationship. I, I think that it's – you're you're doing like that character is doing so much and one of the possibilities is like thinking about what his feelings might be towards Hey but at the same time it allows jong su's mind to go all sorts of places and it's kind of funny that like he's probably taking that as a given that they that, that they're in a relationship and we know better and that's just a kind of a fun storytelling trick the movie plays yeah and again this isn't to say that they weren't in a relationship the point is we don't know right and it's we know it's, it's we, we know there's a very the, good chance there wasn't, and he doesn't have that. He, that's not where his mind goes, though. No, and again, one of the things that like uh, Li Chengdong talked about, and this is something that like makes sense based on having seen the movie, is he wanted to map out a, a lot of what his aim with the movie was was to map out like the multitude of ambiguities and to layer all of these different conflicting, separate ambiguities on top of each other. 
Um, because in the way we interact with the world around us, there are a lot of things we take as solid, as fixed, as coherent, that if you're actually to think about them, to try to deconstruct them, there's no foundation there. We go through our lives creating narratives out of things. We, we, we go through lives creating fixed, coherent narratives out of a chaos that we can't understand because it makes us feel safer. And I think a lot of what this movie is, is mapping out those unfixed assumptions we make about our lives and the world around us. Yeah. And I also want to talk about that in the context, in the context of, Hey, me as a character, because yes. it's funny. We've just like gone down these two rabbit holes with those two characters. When I guess the only thing we really know is true about her is that I think it's fair to say she did know him when they were younger because like he is from that town. And yeah. basically that's all we know because she says that, and then he confirms like nothing of their past beyond that and is unable to confirm this story she tells about a well, which comes up uh, quite a bit. But you can you can project just a lot onto her as well. Like, I mean, there's all well, I mean, the, while that Stephen Yen character is so many things at once, like she is, um, I guess, two things. And uh, one is what, what you're seeing through what you're seeing through Jong Su. And another is if you just assume she is like making everything up uh what what was your what was your read on how the movie handled that character because i mean i think as we discussed a little bit before we started recording i mean some people think it's like might just be like a basic manny pixie dream girl type thing and manic pixie dream girl yeah yeah a manic pixie dream girl type thing where there's potentially like a lot more going on there that i think plays into these different avenues narratives that you were just discussing yeah no i actually think on some level, she's she's potentially the most interesting character in the movie. She's certainly the center of what I think is the best moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I want to get to the the way the movie uses oneers later on. Yeah. But she, there is a there is a flatness to the character. Um, she's not given the textual complexity that Stephen Yoon and Jung Su were given. But there's a reason for that. When we see her, we're seeing her exclusively through Jong Su's eyes. We're seeing her through the eyes of a character who has created this obsession, who only wants to see her as the object of his affection. Mm-hmm. She's not given the chance to be anything more. Mm-hmm. And she's very clearly, clearly a character who talks about wanting more and talks about this need for the, fullness. The little hunger versus the great hunger, I think, was exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. So we're we're given textual like we're given textual evidence that she is a complex person who wants this fullness in her life, but the fact that we only see her as this kind of flat manic manic pixie dream girl character, it's because we're seeing her through the eyes of a character who has who is so obsessed with her that he can't actually see her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of brings me to one of the things that I think is so misunderstood about the movie. Jung Su is not in love with her. And I've seen I've seen reviews talking about how we see these two different characters who are in love with her and we're meant to side with Jung Su and Jung Su's obsessive love. He's not in love with her. He's had one encounter with her and he's created this massive ideal romance that 
doesn't actually exist. Yeah, no, I never thought that. I thought he, th- I thought he thought he was in love with her, but I didn't actually think he was in love with her. Is what I'd say. I, I'm not saying you're the one who's been doing this. No, no, but no. But that, like... that was my read on it. I didn't think it was yeah. anything like genuine love. I just thought like he, he definitely created something a lot more than was actually there in his head. Look, this is just a like a bugaboo for me because I've seen enough reviews specifically talk about his love for her that I like yeah. I want to strangle that's, someone. That's interesting that people have genuinely taken it that way as like a you're cheering for the guy with the earnest love as opposed to the the, the swarmy rich guy. And I, this movie is way way more complex than that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think that's a misreading of the character. I think it's a misreading of the dynamics. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I guess I am going to talk about that one oneer. Go for uh, it. Yeah. So. The the moment of the movie for me, and this was the moment that just took my breath away. Uh, the three characters are at Jung Su's farmhouse, mm-hmm. and earlier in the movie, Haimi has talked about this ritual dance that represents uh, the hunger. Yeah, in in Africa. Yeah. Uh, I forgot if you mentioned, but like, yeah, she she met Ben while traveling in Africa. Yeah. Um, Ben, the character. And the moment for me that it, it, it was where the poetics of the movie met the formal mastery of the movie in, in a way that was just incredible. Uh, Hamney basically, she, she takes off her shirt and she begins to dance mm-hmm. on, and the camera follows her around in this kind of, the camera is itself dancing on as she does this kind of ritual dance with her arms towards the sky while the, the Miles Davis's music from the, <laughs> the elevator of the gallows plays, mm-hmm. and which first off for my money is the greatest film score of all time. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, it, it was like, it's, it, that movie is a good movie that is elevated to something more by a sound, by the soundtrack that pretty much does its work for it. Huh. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what that piece of music was. And I just felt this hunger for fullness and this desire to be full and rich and contented in a way that the, the movie never gives us. That's kind of the one moment where I think we're seeing something of the real her. And it was just stunningly beautiful. And you know how uh, one way you know that uh, Jong Su doesn't really genuinely love her is that he doesn't get that. No, and I think it's important. It's important who the camera rests on during that dance, mm-hmm. because that's the moment. It, it's we're not watching him watch her. Hmm. We're watching her. Yeah. And that's kind of her last major moment in the movie before she disappears. Yeah. Uh, there's there's kind of that whole night, but that that's. She she disappears the next morning. Um, yeah, I want I want I I want to do a little more of a jumping off point now. That's a little spoilery yeah. because I mean we don't I don't necessarily have to talk about the very end now, but I want to speculate a little bit. So um, I'm going to put timestamps on the whole podcast or whatever. So whoever is listening can just look at the podcast description and jump to the beginning of Vox Lux if they've seen Vox Lux. If not, you can go watch that and then or watch Burning and then watch the rest of our discussion on it. But yeah, so go away right now if you haven't seen it. it. Ben would definitely recommend the movie. I would too. Come back and listen to the rest of it. Let us know what you Yeah, think. just a quick quick note. I'll say I think it's yeah. been a very good year for movies. Yeah. There have been three movies that are just far and above everything else that are better than everything else this year, better than everything from last year. What, what, this what are movie, they for you? 
this one. Yeah. You were never really here, which I know you definitely don't agree with me on. Uh, I, I, I never did a podcast. I'm not on the record on that because I have to. I saw that movie with a massive throbbing headache, so I kind of reserve right. judgment on okay. it. So I'm, I'm going to watch it again. It's on Amazon Prime. But when, what's your other one? Madeline's Madeline. Okay, cool. Um, so, well, that's a that's a big that's a big endorsement from a guy that watches just as much, if not more, movies than I do. So, um, yeah, I'll it, say, but like, really, this one is worth watching, and it even if you're not kind of the most well versed in kind of what you would consider art cinema. There is enough there that it is a movie that, if nothing else, will leave you thinking. Oh, and it's for something... sure. I, I am one of those people. I mean, I, I do a lot, much, much better job of making it to like art house stuff than I did three years ago. But like, I do not have that same library in my head or the same understanding of formal filmmaking that Ben does. Yet, it left me a lot to chew on. So, I, I will say, say I'm that person, and it's definitely worth going to. But, uh, but yeah. So uh, let, let me jump in now. Spoilers o'clock. Yeah, sure. And so. We we talked a lot about like um, just what's real, what's not. I mean, did you um, did you does it even matter what happens to her? No. Again, like we're not meant to have a fixed understanding of what happened. We're well, I guess it, it's spoilers now. So it's it's whether Ben whether fuck it, I'm just gonna call him Ben at this point. <laughs> okay, whatever, um, whatever works for you best. <laughs> yeah. Whether whether Ben killed her. Whether she disappeared, whether this entire conspiracy was non-existent, whether she's gone for some innocuous reason, whether she was in on something with Ben, because I do think that's another possibility that is raised by the movie, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is the search and that desire for the search coming from Jong Su. Mm-hmm. Um, and just on that note, there's like the thing that th- this is just another one of those weird possibilities, and it's something that caught my eye. At the end of the movie, Ben has another girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a possibility raised that that girlfriend is Jaime, who has gotten plastic surgery. Yeah, I was. Um, I, that, that's kind of where my head went. Where you see, like, you see him like applying like things to her to make her look a very yeah. specific way, and I'm like, is that what they're implying here? Because like she looks like a different person, but it seems like that's kind of what they're implying by lingering so much on this scene. So there's that, but there are also two other points in the movie that I think work as kind of evidence for that. And you, and you already know that she's had plastic surgery before. Exactly. At the beginning of the movie, she says Jung Soo does not recognize her. Yeah. Yeah. Jung Soo does not recognize her. She specifically says, I got plastic surgery. Right. So first off, that it, it introduces that possibility. Mm-hmm. Second off, when, he final, when Jung Soo finally confronts Ben about Jaime's disappearance, Ben says he has not seen her, and then the next shot is his new girlfriend getting out of the car. Huh, okay. Um, and again, this is not meant to be, like, this is what happened. Yeah, it's, it's just, just another something they throw out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, it's, just a, it's a weird little thing that, for me, made the movie that much more compelling, that this, like, additional possibility was introduced, which also, which would raise the, the possibility that she was in on this game with Ben as well. But yeah, yeah so, I mean, it's, it's not the most major thing, but it's just something that no, like, yeah. I, I appreciate. Yeah. So there's that, there's the possibility she's dead. There's the possibility that like she legitimately just drifted her separate ways from Ben and had no desire to see Jong Su, which would be kind of understandable given uh, the last thing he says to her and his attempts to kind of badger her after that. Or, I mean, there's also the possibility that like maybe she did go on seeing Ben and, um, 
for longer than for, for at least some time as jong thought. And then they just broke up and she said, Hey, just, I don't really want jong to find me. So don't tell him if you run into him. So like the point is all of these possibilities are po- like are all of these things are possible and it doesn't matter which one actually happened because the movie does not itself give us an answer. Yeah. So it would be, it would be irresponsible in the way we view the movie to project a specific answer onto it. Right. Um, like there's, there's actually, uh, Something I've been thinking about in the context of the movie. Um, I don't know. Have you seen the movie Being There? I've not. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid spoil. Well, it's not really a spoiler because it's, it's more an image than anything else. Um, but at the end of the movie, the main character basically walks out onto the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not given an answer why this hasn't been like a magical realist movie up to that point. It's this impossible image that raises so many possibilities that we don't have a coherent answer to. And Roger Ebert, who I I love, um, in his review of the movie, talked about how so many students he's instructed, so many people he's talked to, try to project this specific reason, this explanation onto the image. Maybe... It was a, a low tide. What actually, like he was walking on a, an invisible bridge. The point is, there is no answer given, so everything is possible. And the only, like the only textual answer we're given, is the impossible. Hmm. It would be irresponsible to project anything else onto it. Interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. Quest, the question is itself the answer. I agree, and it's but it's still like fun to talk about these possibilities. Oh no, can, I'm not saying it isn't. Yeah, um, no, no, no. Like we just did that with that plastic surgery thing. It's it's fun to talk it out and just accept the fact that you're never going to know and just think about it. And yeah, that's probably and that's the best way to appreciate this movie. Yeah, but part of that for me is just I do think that there is a tendency people have with ambiguous endings and with ambiguities within movies to try to create a coherent answer. And kind of the most famous example, I'm not the biggest fan of the movie, is the end of Inception. Huh. Yeah. Um, it's like people speculate on what specifically happened, but the point is we're not given an answer. Like that is the answer. And I don't know. It's just, it's something that bugs me a lot. And this is something that I, you know, I do think, you know, another movie, you, you know what another oh, yeah. movie ending I like is it's kind of along the same, a little different. I don't, I'm not even sure how you feel at the movie. I really like the ending of whiplash where, yeah, I, I like it. Um, I, I think it's Damien Chazelle's best movie, but okay. Well, um, I kind of I I I don't know if you're I don't know if you're disagreeing with how much you like that ending then but like I I it's just another thing where it's like you can just kind of think about it like what what does that mean because it's obviously that the teacher thinks he's reached his full potential but what what where is it going to go from there you're never going to know he's not going to make a whiplash too you just get to think about what ha, the, the biggest movie that question raises is there a price that's too high to achieve greatness you know and you're kind of left thinking like oh well, this kid went through a bunch of abuse but. He's finally realized his potential. What is what what does that mean? And you have to grapple with that, whether it was too much or not, because it it kind of answers the question of just how far you need to push someone. And I mean, sometimes you just kind of you're kind of left there sitting with the question. And I think a lot of people might just try and, and solve burning as like a puzzle and try and figure out the exact answer for what it all means. And like you started off this podcast saying, like it's fine that it doesn't do that for you. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's funny. I, I went to a talk with the the head of Focus Features at one point. And he said that one of the things he loves about the Coen brothers is they are, I guess, the rare directors who don't give answers that American audiences accept. Yeah, how weird is the um, ending of No Country, you know? Uh, how weird is the ending of A, of a, a Serious Man? Yeah. 
Um, but basically, it's they, Amer like, and th this is something that I do think is more specific to American audiences and what they're willing to accept. American audiences want certainty. They want, uh, they don't like open-ended endings. They don't like leaving the movie with those ambiguities and those questions. They want a more concrete understanding of what they've just witnessed. And that's something that can lead to problematic interpretations of certain movies. And that it's, I, I wish we were a little more flexible about. Um, because for me, the, oftentimes in art, the questions are more interesting than the answers. Yeah, for sure. Well, a couple other things I wanted to touch yeah. on about the movie. Sorry, I know like, I got on a weird tangent. There. No, no, I think it, it goes to like what makes the movie so special and uh, thought provoking. So, I mean, you can't talk enough about that point. But one thing that I, I probably should have brought up before we got into the spoiler section was um, this movie makes a couple of allusions to the outside world beyond just South yeah. Korea. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you thought that enhanced the rest of the movie because I'm still kind of grappling with that question myself. Um, one, one being that uh, Jongsu's village is close enough to where you can just like hear propaganda speakers going from North Korea, which is kind of interesting. I never really thought about the the border being that. I mean, I know they're, they, they the country share a border, but I never thought of it like being like that apparent. And that you hear a little bit of Donald Trump going on in the background at one point, and that kind of remind. And, and this is based on a, a short again based on a short story that was written in 1983. So it's a very clear choice that. Uh, Lee Chang Dong made to have these little uh, flourishes. Uh, what did you make of that in the moment? Well, first off, on that subject, like my thing with adaptations is your only obligation is to the new work of art you're creating. Um, I'm like, and any any great adaptation is going to be doing something personal and timely and original with the the adapted source material. So I, I definitely appreciate that in general. But with the political stuff. It's again, that is another example of Li Chengdong mapping out these contradictions and ambiguities that that exist in kind of a, a that, that we encounter on kind of a wider scale. And like I, I do see that as kind of similar to the way narratives are used in a mar like in, in a Marxist sense. Um mar like narratives and ideologies, I would say. Uh we tend to view a lot of political things in the world around us, a lot of cultural assumptions in the world around us through very specific lenses. And I think that one of the examples of the ambiguity ambiguities that uh, Li Chengdong is, is using in the movie, it's the divide between the way we but between an actual political reality and the narrative and the way it plays into the narrative we both create for ourselves and participate in in a wider societal scale. Um, and it's, it's I'm sorry if that doesn't make sense because I'm trying to put order to a large mass of ideas here. Yeah. And no. it's been a little longer since I've seen the movie than you. But yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting to think about it in that context because I don't even know if I got that big picture with it but i knew there was some aspect of that to it as well because i was thinking almost more in terms of just like the the class aspect of it and how in 
I don't know enough about North Korea, South Korea, and each other to comment a ton on that about how the two sides interact, and that's a pretty fluid situation. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think for the most part, Lee Cheng Dong isn't going for like a didactic political commentary, because um, that doesn't seem like. I mean, I've only seen this one movie, but that doesn't seem like his style. No, but like at the same time, he this is a movie to some extent about class, and he yep. is. He is. I don't. It's, I, I don't think it's a total coincidence that he puts Donald Trump in there. And you think about yeah. the the class, uh, the class divide that oddly became apparent during his campaign, where he's appealing to a certain socioeconomic class that he obviously has no interest um, in ever actually being that physically close to. But uh, it was speaking to a, a group of people that uh, th- that their equivalent would have been where Jong Su grew up in. In South Korea, and uh, a group of people that kind of wants a better life promised to them, and he he goes through a lot of this movie thinking he kind of deserves that, and is obviously somewhat resentful of of Ben for that. And I thought it kind of showed how um, some of those some of those wants uh, from certain classes are fairly universal from country to country, and yep. that 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 was at least one of the small things I took from that. But I mean, it is interesting to hear you talk about the just the the bigger picture of like how he would have been trying to um how how he would have been trying to comment a little bit on uh just bigger picture politics without like you said like making the whole thing a commentary on politics yeah Um, when also something to think about is lee chang dong is not an american filmmaker like the way he encounters trump is going to be very particular to some like to a korean a korean person encountering trump from the outside like and I think if you if you don't live in the U.S., the version of Trump that you probably encounter is this crazy person who is like spouting this absurd bullshit in a public setting. And it's you don't. That's probably the thing that strikes you is someone who is so blatantly and obviously false and full of shit, basically be, like people attempting to take him seriously. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about the way Americans view Brexit, for example. Um, we don't necessarily... I mean, if, if you're like a political junkie, you'll dive into the the kind of deeper nuances of it, but you'll see these kind of crazy talking heads um, spouting these absurd uh, and obviously false stuff. And that's that's kind of the part that will stick with you. It's kind of the just the absurdity of it. Yeah. Um, and so imagine encountering Trump from the outside. And I think that's probably the big reason he was using Trump, just because of the obvious absurdity of him. No, makes sense. Uh, last thing I want to let you comment. We talked about the obviously the big oneer in the middle of the movie, but yeah. um, you you mentioned that like you thought this whole film itself was, or we got to actually talk about the last scene too. But um, yeah, like how this whole film is very impressively made technically. I mean, were, were there were there any other uh, technical flourishes that still resonate with you, even though it's been a little bit since you've seen the movie? Um, I mean, outside of the use of oneers in general. Uh, the way the way he captured light um, was just really impressive to me, um, especially considering it, it was shot on digital. Um, and I mean, if you're on Letterboxd and you follow Sean Baker, uh, you'll probably know that something he rants about a lot is directors shooting on digital instead of film when they could have gotten away with film. And for a lot, to a large extent, I don't disagree with him. 
but the way just kind of the way he painted with light in the movie um it was just really stunning to me hmm. uh also the way he control like one one of the reasons why i think kind of the the presence of the ambiguities in the movie works so well was Li Chang Dong's control of what we do and do not see. Um, the way he kind of mapped out spaces and, and used sound to kind of introduce these elements that are kind of tied into the space that we don't actually have a concrete view of. It, it, it's something that I think helped bring the movie to another level and helped make these ambiguities feel more enticingly paranoid. I like specifically how he – I think the the biggest example of that that stood out to me was how he shot Ben's apartment. Yeah. Um, like the way the, – I don't know. The way the camera moved around there was like actually pretty interesting to me. Um, I would agree. And also I, I love the way he used uh, the score um, because it, it, it the, the actual purpose the score served kind of changed pretty frequently throughout the movie. But it was always used to a really incredible end. It wasn't there, – there were moments where it was meant to – emphasize and highlight the tone of the scene it, it kind of took on this more manipulative characteristic but then there are other times where it completely contradicted the assumption we have about the scene it creates this other possible understanding of, of the images we're watching that creates uh, and I, I hate to keep using the word ambiguity but if there's any movie that word applies to it's this one it creates further ambiguities because it problematizes the way we perceive the world on mm. um, and again, like those are the things that really stick with me. I love the cinematography in general. I thought, I mean, it was edited beautifully. And just to go back to those wonders again, and this I think we can use as a way to get towards that ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a lot of wonders in the movie, which for I guess if you're listening to this and you, and you don't know what that means, it's basically a long take, especially in a scene that is solely shot in one it is solely one shot um and there are a lot of them in the movie and oftentimes they give the movie a slower and more meditative feeling but at other times it's used as a way to heighten the tension and i think the ending which is shot in a wonder is an example of both um so basically, if we're if we're going to spoil it now, yeah, we're uh, we're, we're, we're already there. We're, even though we're like well past spoilers. Yeah, no, no, go for it, um, go for it, go for it. Yeah, uh, basically, Ben. So Jong Su, uh, basically shows up by Ben's car, kills him, like uh, sets him and his car on fire, and strips off all of his clothes, burns those too. And then drives away. Is that yeah, correct? It's, it's accurate. Yeah. Um, it's all shot in one take. And it feels tense and unnerving. And we're watching someone kill someone in a single unbroken shot. But it also feels strangely graceful. Um, and I think that kind of contradiction it was appropriate. Uh what, what, what do you think of the ending? I thought it was like interestingly in a way foreshadowed by like all of his family drama. I mean, yeah. that like his, I mean, I, I, I don't really particularly care whether or not he ultimately gets away with the murder, but if you want to presume that like his life is n- not going to be great 
um, as a result of going through such a scarring experience. I mean, his life was probably set on a bad track by um, his mom leaving because of his dad's violent tendencies. And Oh, quick side note. I will yeah. say one of the things that really kind of highlights that is this someone writing their own life thing. Yeah. Is like the convenient plot twist of his long lost mother showing up out of nowhere. <laughs> like that, that was a moment for me. It's like, Oh wait, this character's a writer. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely foreshadowed in the ending. We didn't talk a ton about Jung Su as a character, but he is someone who does kind of represent this to- toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, and I think that it is kind of the ultimate, like period, like the ultimate like period for that is him finding the only way to resolve this tension, this these questions in his lives. The only way to resolve that is to kill Ben. Yeah. Either way, like he's felt like he's become entitled to this woman, and I mean, he, he doesn't know what's happened. We don't know what's happened, or he doesn't know, but he he's under the impression that like that. She, I, I I guess at this point we're led to believe that he thinks that for whatever reason he's not in her life. Ben is to blame for that. And, uh, so he does that. And to me, that was where it resonated me for me more than anything was just like, this is largely probably something that was some kind of something that was passed down to him. He was raised by this dad who had violent tendencies solely by him because it drove his mom away and probably set him on a pretty bad path for just his, for his, for his viewpoint and his tendencies as a person. And this was a pretty unfortunate, but not illogical into that. But, it, one the one interesting wrench that they have in that scene, if you were if you recall, is that when he is yeah. still stabbing Ben, I mean Ben looks at him and hugs him, uh, and I, yeah. I, I, I that's like it was just like another funny, interesting, weird character beat for a character that uh, Dong doesn't want you to be able to put in a box. Um, well, at the same time, that also feels like the culmination of the their flirtation in the movie, right? Um, if like if you are going to kind of apply that reading to it. So much of their dynamic is driven by this kind of off-screen violence, this off-screen horror, that when we finally see the consummation of that dynamic, it, it's it's killing. It is it's Jong Su killing Ben. And so like I guess you could you could read the explanation for Ben's intimacy in that moment with him. As this is the consummation of their dynamic, this is what this is what it's been leading towards. Yeah, sad, <laughs> sad. Um, and actually, one one kind of question I had regarding Jung Su is: Have you read any Murakami before? No. Okay. One of the things, like alienated male protagonists, are a pretty common recurring thread for him. Hmm. And one of the reasons why I like this movie so much is I think the kind of the typical like Murakami protagonist works better when it's literalized. Hmm. Like when we actually see, uh, see Jong Su's posture, when we see this kind of just off character and we, it's not just, uh, it's easier to kind of concretely point to him as being himself, the, the toxic one. Um, like, and, and I think that's, something i that's something i appreciate a lot and it's, it's part of the reason why i've been so frustrated by what i see as the misreadings of him and jaime 
I think it's pretty obvious that there is something off with Jung Su, and he almost feels like a caricature of the way to- like toxically alienated men see themselves. Hmm. So, yeah, or yeah. it's kind of more representing the reality of who they are. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I think like a lot of the movie, he is he is there kind of like. Even if it's not actually that way, he still gives off the impression of someone who is a little um, oblivious or mouth agape type of person. So yeah. it's it's w- w- when you think of that, it's interesting to also think of it in the context in which you described it because it seems like he is he is fairly passive in some ways for a lot of it, yet is still assertive in some of those toxic male ways. Um, yeah. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy. Um, yeah, honestly, like I, I, there is a lot of stuff in this movie I, I could go on and on about. <laughs> um, but you know, we, we got another movie to talk about. Yeah. So I was just going to say, I mean, do you have any, uh, final quick parting thoughts that you do have on this before we move on? Cause I've, uh, again, I, we both recommend it, but is there, is there one last thing you want to say before we, before we move on? Um, honestly, if what we've been talking about for the past hour isn't enough of a reason to see it, <laughs> there is so much more to this movie that we didn't even get to. The kind of the central notion of burning and this kind of tension associated oh, God. with. We didn't even talk about the whole greenhouse. Thing. We, we we really didn't. Oh, um, like I said, I could like there is so much to talk about with this movie. It is rich. Like this movie is rich in a way that very few movies are able to achieve. It's there is so much to it. It is dense. It is layered. Yeah, you it's, could, you it's, could go down the same rabbit hole with that whole greenhouse thing that you did with everything else. I mean, about honestly, whether, we, what, what, we is, it, is, it, is it true? Is it not? What is what is uh, Jong Su actually think about that, and how is that manifested in his writing? And like, we could have had a completely separate conversation for the past hour, and still, even with this, not have covered everything the movie has to offer. Yeah, and that, to yeah. me, is just a testament to how great it is. Yeah, it's fair warning; it is two hours and forty minutes, but I think it is it, it's it's worth your time, and it, it earns its runtime for sure. But that's there's just a reason why we couldn't talk about every little thing of it but no but i i I again i think we both recommend it i i and i uh and again i i told people not to listen to this part if they hadn't watched it yet but maybe they did anyway but uh i i appreciate you going so deep on it with me because it has helped me uh see the movie in a different light but we got to move on to we got to move on to vox lux yes uh because i got sunday night football to get to in a little bit but i really did want to talk about this movie because i actually probably left it with even more clear thoughts than i did from uh burning as much as i now feel like i know burning but uh vox lux is the the new film by uh filmmaker uh brady corbet who uh he made one movie before called the childhood of a leader which i had not seen uh but but yeah it was oh he really likes it uh, so our our friend Elijah has basically been telling me to watch this movie for a long time, and oh. at this point, I'm partially not watching it out of spite for him. Oh, okay, I will okay. watch it at some point, but yeah. Well, yeah. So he he made one prior movie, so I was very curious when I saw this guy. It's like he's like when I first learned about this movie, the guy was still 29 years old, and he's making this movie with like Natalie Portman, Jude Law. Seems like it's gonna be a big thing, but um, it Vox Lux. I mean, it, it, it it's the story of a of a singer named uh, Celeste who. God, some people didn't even want to talk about the first scene as like a spoiler, but like it's the first scene, and I find it hard to talk about the movie without. It's, actually it's not, about it. and I, I don't like it. It's not really a spoiler, especially since like, look, there are people saying the movie is about school shootings. Yeah, it's not. It's really. It's no. it's like it's what starts it off, but it's it's not really trying to yeah. kind of comment on them in like a really substantial way. Yeah, so. and I think going into it, I didn't even know that. I honestly didn't even know that was gonna be a part of it. I I thought it was gonna be like 
like Steve Jobs for a pop star. We were just gonna like. I thought we were just gonna like follow a pop star backstage and figure out a bunch of like crazy stuff about how hard her life is going, and it was gonna be the movie that zipped along like that. For some reason, I had that impression in my head. Maybe the trailer gave that impression a little bit. So I had no idea that that was what it was actually gonna be. Um, but it, it basically follows this young girl Celeste, and who lives on Staten Island, and she is, is a student at a place where there's a school shooting, and uh, a lot of her she's injured in it. A lot of her a lot of her classmates are obviously killed at a I guess because she's one of the few surviving people from the classroom where the shooting took place, they decide to have her speak at a a vigil where she, instead of giving a speech, it just puts it in a song, which becomes a big hit. And very quickly after that happens, she is kind of swept up by a music producer played by Jude Law and is brought around the country with her sister. And you see the beginnings of her music career. But then the movie jumps forward uh, 18 years to... When th- in this version, she's played by Natalie Portman. Her sister in both timelines is played by Stacey Martin. Uh, Jude Law plays the manager. And that is the character's name, just the manager uh, in both timelines. And uh, then you kind of follow her like the day of another big tragedy in the present day and see how she's dealing with that. But you get a sense of like how her life has gone to that point. Ben and I were talking a little bit about it beforehand, and I think the most interesting part of the movie for me was just kind of – thinking about how art comes from tragedy but i think and i want to talk about that some but i I don't really know exactly what you thought about this movie ben because i know you're somewhat mixed on it but what was your uh what was your initial big takeaway from it and uh because i know you had some fairly specific thoughts in relation to both like a star is born another movie about a singer this year but also um work that you've done in the past yeah um i mean there's there's a lot to talk to so i'll try to kind of get to quickly um i would say that of note is the fact that it's not that art comes from tragedy. And I think one of the things we're meant to question is how much of an artist is Celeste, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially since the movie introduces this dynamic between her and her sister. Her sister was the talented one. Her sister was the one who was this kind of talented singer and this kind of more of a creative dynamo. But Celeste is the one that this happened to. Um, Celeste is the one who becomes a celebrity. And it, it kind of introduces this, gulf between who we anoint and who has the like the gift and it kind of introduces this question of of how much in pop music and pop culture does this it how much room is there for artistry and i think like the moment for me that i actually kind of loved and like i almost like cracked up in the theater is uh in the second half of the movie natalie portman is giving an interview Mm-hmm. And one of the journalists asks her for asks her about her new project, uh, which is the titular Fox Lux. Yes. Um, and Natalie Portman, with the most bored expression on her face, says, "Space anthems." <laughs> um, and that to me, it's it's like it almost doesn't matter. It is just such this like gimmicky bullshit that I I, I don't know I. I it's especially interesting to look at this in the context of the star is born because the pop star is probably the closest analog for Vox Lux is Lady Gaga. Um, but I think the movie takes a pretty cynical approach to pop music. But one problem I had with it was that I think it needed someone with a better understanding of how to present what pop music represents to people. Um, because like there needed to be in the movie, I think, a sharper divide between this hollow, hyper-real, almost plastic pop ideal and the world itself. Um, and I, this this kind of ties into uh, 
a script I wrote that I actually kind of want to make someday. Uh, but there, there, I think there needed to be a much clearer divide there. And I think that honestly, better than Lady Gaga, a better example of the musician to use as kind of the, the archetype would be Kesha. Okay. Um, because I think there needed to be this hyper real fakeness to the pop music. I think it needed to be shot with, to be honest, more of a music video aesthetic. Yeah. Um, that, like the, it, the scale, well, that last concert's supposed to take place on Staten Island, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Cause like, I don't really know what kind of venues they have on Staten Island. So I didn't know if it was supposed to feel smaller in scale. Um, because I, I, I kind of heard other people saying they just didn't think the movie had the budget to like actually pull off something that big as maybe it would it should have called for. But like, so I wasn't exactly sure how we were supposed to feel in any respect, whether or not that was good music, whether or not it was the best version of that performance she could be giving or how big it was in scale. I didn't know what we were supposed to be making of what we were watching at the end. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't love the ending. Um, and that's just because I don't think it needed to be more of a showstopper. I don't mean like it needed to entertain us more, but it needed to kind of, we needed to understand why people viewed Celeste as this kind of standable superstar. Uh, and I think kind of the, the, the aesthetic they, they took for it was kind of concert footage. It's like we were watching a, a concert and a award show on TV. And I don't think that was the right choice. I, I think it, I think there are ways to explore, to to kind of like explore uh, the 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 fakeness of pop music, while at the same time showing the bombast of of, of what it can be. And I think that would have been a better way to kind of illustrate. I think what Corbett is more getting at, which is like the evils of pop, and kind of that on some level, the there is something evil about the way we idolize celebrities and idolize pop musicians and idolize people and and kind of ascribe this genius to people who are essentially hollow yeah i don't know if, yeah i didn't know if, i don't know if the word evil ever came into my mind but i i, sir, but, I, I unhealthy was more where my head went and, and well so how 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 spoiler yeah we're not gonna do uh, spoiler for this I don't okay know. cool because I mean, uh, I mean, this isn't like a queer thing where a lot of crazy shit happens at the end that like, I feel but like there's that, well. but remember there's that bit to the end where, uh, it, t- it talks about Celeste said when she was in the, the gulf between life and death, she saw the devil. Oh, um, we're, we're talking about it now, so we're not going to do like a spoiler section, but I, I mean, I guess the, the biggest thing I kind of took from the movie was because like, I, uh, I, it was, it was kind of how like I would describe that relationship as unhealthy because I was thinking about the um, just the beginning of the movie, and one thing I like to think about a lot is just like, and and, and I think you put it well before where I, when you corrected me and I said how art comes from this, and it's not necessarily how art comes from tragedy, but how like we might prop someone up after a tragedy, yeah, and just to kind of have something good come from it, whether that be art or something else. And I mean, I don't. I guess you're supposed you're, you're probably supposed to think that first song that she sings is like way better than what she's doing. Uh, Not later, even. I don't even know. You don't think so? No, it's, I, I actually don't. Um, okay. I, I think like I don't think it's even. Well, first off, I think the movie takes a pretty cynical approach to all of this. Oh, definitely. Um, I don't think it's even that there's something especially great about her first song. It's just that it's 
something that captivated. It, it's something that kind of people created a story out of. It, it, it like there is nothing about her that merited this superstar. And again, we see this kind of dynamic between her and her sister, who is the one who had the talent, who is the one who kind of put in the work. But never had something like a tragedy to prop her up in the first place. No. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of like the idea of just thinking about that and how if you are the person that's put in that position, I, I don't think the average pop music fan is really going to think of the, the the whatever inner turmoil or toll that takes on you to like have been able to benefit so much from something so horrible. And Yeah, um, and I've, I've seen a lot of people talk about uh, kind of Nellie Port- Celeste as being kind of wildly unsympathetic. Oh, and no. I don't necessarily- Sorry, uh, I, I've seen a lot of that, and that's like, like one of kind of the responses to that has. And this, I actually agree with kind of the response to that is, it's not there. There is a vast amount of trauma, and there is something vastly uncomfortable about being in the place she is in life, and the way she reacts, and kind of the way she reacts to kind of that inner trauma and that turmoil. It is very it's it's sad and it's identifiable in its sadness. Yeah, I think maybe people are I mean, there's this big time jump in the movie, you know? And yeah. I feel like people might just be saying she's unsympathetic because I mean, however you feel about this performance, and I'm not even still sure how I feel about it, but she's made a clear choice um in the performance and to play this as someone that has been very I think has just been very uh, jaded by life and is – I feel like it would be one thing. You could see how – like people want to know how she – I think people that are saying that might just want to be like, well, why is she like this? She's just very hard. And I think you got to just think about what she went through because we get a little bit of it. Yeah. We, like We understand that like she um, – she 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 had a kid when she was young and was kind of should say that the young Celeste is play, is played by Raffi Cassidy who also plays Celeste's daughter in the later timeline, which is an like interesting flourish. Um, but like she has that she's had like a whole history of drug problems. She had presumably a lot of issues with the f- father of her child, and you can just imagine how that combined with whatever unresolved um, trauma that she has had from her childhood would just be a bad combination. It's going to result in a not totally well-adjusted person. And thinking about the effect that that might have had on her was probably like my favorite part of this movie is just wondering what what kind of toll that takes when you go through something like that. And you probably don't really go through a normal morning uh, period or somewhere where you're getting traditional um, psychological uh, mental health counseling of any sort and said you're whisked away to become a pop star. It's got to fuck with you. Yeah, there's that. And I, th- I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing that we see her struggle with outside of that specific traumatic event is just this feeling of it would be one thing if she didn't know that she wasn't talented enough. Right. That she, but we, I think we see pretty clearly in the movie, she knows she doesn't deserve to be revered in the way she is. But they don't like, tell if, us that her sister wrote the songs until the end, right? Or until that second I mean, act. We're told that in the second act, yeah. but uh, like it's pretty like it, it, it's something that we even see in the first part of the movie that her sister was uh, was the the musician. Yeah. Her sister was the, the the talented one. Her sister was the one who was kind of coaching her. And then it's kind of specifically mentioned in the second half of the movie that right, yes, well, her sister wrote the lyrics, but also that like her sister was kind of the actual musical one in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think one of the things I don't think Sia's songs in the movie were quite showcased as well as they could have been 
but they were yeah we should say that the artist sia does the pretty much the whole most of the songs for the movie uh sia does the songs and the actual like the score of the movie was done by scott walker okay uh who basically if if you're listening and that excites you it's as amazing as you think it is Hmm. um yeah, side note, I, I love the, the score in the movie. But I, I think Sia's songs were kind of intentionally plastic and kind of kitschy. Uh, and I think that's kind of how we're meant to see Celeste. Her her songs are not, are they're not rich. They're not even kind of especially dynamic or creative. They're kind of cheap and plastic and kitschy. Uh, and it's how do you... How do you li- like reconcile like the adoration and the reverence and the, the worship with kind of this inner knowledge that you do not feel proud of your own work? You don't feel proud of your work that is getting this acclaim. Because I do think that's something the movie gives us. That, like that is how Celeste feels about her own work. Yeah, I don't think she has the easiest time necessarily expressing that either because – no, she doesn't. She, whole, she doesn't have an easy time communicating with people in general. Like that whole scene with the daughter at the diner is like – it's like very uncomfortable, but I think it is a good illustration of like how all of these issues have manifested themselves within her as a person. You know, like she she, she clearly has like a frustration with her place in life, but like what is she going to – what is she actually going to say to her daughter? Like she can't really make it a coherent statement about like how she feels about her career. On in in fame and yeah. like the, just the effect of fame on her. She's trying to talk about like what it's like to be someone like that and be a singer. And I mean, I feel like part of it and part of her frustrations might be that like she doesn't really, she probably doesn't feel as fulfilled as a celebrity as she probably should because of this. Yeah, um, you know the dynamic between Celeste and her daughter. I I really liked, uh, and it just it kind of. I actually really liked uh, the actor who played the daughter, uh, Rafi Cassidy, in both halves of the movie. I thought there, there there is an argument that she was she gave a more dynamic performance than Portman, and I actually liked Portman's performance in the movie. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I thought that that dynamic was super interesting, and it's she. There was a desire to have this relationship with her daughter, but it just she didn't know how to do it. She didn't know how to talk to her. She didn't know how to communicate with her because there's something in her that just couldn't do that. And on top of that, I, her daughter was raised by her sister pretty much is what yeah. is, which it can, also like she already has this weird, she probably doesn't know how to really, uh, it, she doesn't know how to feel about the fact that like her sister has largely been responsible for her whole career. But now like basically she also did her job as mom too. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I, it's the thing. I actually, I thought that uh, Celeste was a very sad and relatable and understandable character. Uh, it's someone in this particular situation. I, I understand why she reacts and why she feels the way she does. Well, also on top and of it's, that, it's hard to watch, but it's it's painfully honest at times. Yeah, and I think I got away from the point I was trying to make earlier is that like when you talk about all this stuff that we're going into that makes her like a not like makes her the person that she is. I think what I was trying to say was when I was saying how it's like unhealthy. Um, it was unhealthy the way we kind of, uh, or you're saying it might be kind of evil the way the this whole celebrity process works. And I, I was thinking unhealthy because, I mean, it, it's kind of like a tragedy happens later in the movie again, a gun related tragedy, and like all of a sudden now they're they're looking to her, um, and it's like 
it's weird that like we put we feel the need to put microphones in front of famous people because something bad happens. Like that's a it's it's an odd trend, but it is a thing where you you do look to people for statements to comment on certain things if they have any tangential relationship to that. And it's obviously like not a total coincidence they would go to her because these these terrorists are wearing masks that are associated with her act. But it's like she does not like she doesn't she's probably not whatever connections that she does have to it, she doesn't really feel that all that well equipped to like be any kind of messenger in that regard. And that probably doesn't really sit that well with her either. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, it's kind of like the, the way she, th- those interview sequences in the second half, mm-hmm. um, I, I, or the way she interacts with the press. I, I, I like that a lot. Like I, I, the thing that really struck me was kind of specifically, the the space anthem thing but that whole interview with kind of the uh that that one reporter who with christopher was abbott's clear- character with who christopher abbott's character oh yeah was that him yeah i well i actually didn't notice um yeah her her interview with Chris, with christopher abbott's character I, I i liked a lot i thought there was a lot there and i, th- I thought kind of she she wanted to it, it felt like there were moments where she wanted to say more and yeah, no, I, I have a, I have a weakness for scenes like just when people get interviewed. Like it's one of my favorite things in movies. I don't know, it's this part of, part of me being a former journalist, and I just like enjoy seeing how characters try and process like those situations. Like the like one of my favorites of the last five years is like uh, Mark Ruffalo getting interviewed for that documentary in Foxcatcher. Or uh, I, I I even enjoy like and there's not even a lot said on him. A lot of it's on his face in that one, and um and or or like uh, the the. The victim interviews in Spotlight, I mean, just another Mark Ruffalo movie, or uh, for me, which uh, is a movie. So basically, you like movies where Mark Ruffalo gets interviewed. I love Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I like like Brie Larson in Room. Uh, she's on the TV interview. Like, there, there, there's been a lot of good ones in the last few years, but I mean, one that was unavoidable for me to think of, in to not think of in this movie, uh, given the actress involved, was when in Jackie when uh, when Billy Crudup is interviewing uh, Jackie. Kennedy and I know I know you're not a fan of that performance but like I I I enjoy like seeing people get put on the spot like that characters that have that whatever kind of shell they're putting up have it having it having that veil pierced for lack of a better term and it's funny like seeing seeing a character like that that's decided to make a choice about how they're going to portray themselves the outside world have some kind of crack in the veneer and be put on their heels and I I get a lot out of those scenes and and this was no exception if you're going to bring up Jackie Let's talk about Natalie Portman, because okay. um, I think there, like, there is a, a reason why I liked her performance in this movie a lot more than I did in Jackie. Well, and what's that? Um, I felt like Jackie was a very polished imitation, um, and I, I think that it was way too driven. Like, I felt like it was way too driven by her doing a very good imitation of Jackie Kennedy's specific mannerisms and just the way the way she was from the outside. It felt like in Vox Lux, a lot more of who Celeste was, a lot more of what Portman was doing as an actress was coming from the inside because she didn't have those mannerisms to specifically model the the character after. It felt like Jackie was a very polished collection of like ticks. Watch a Jackie O video and like, she got it down and I can, I can, I can see why that problem is it was too much of that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's what stopped me from really loving Jackie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to see 
more of that internal dynamism in in characters. It's not necessarily big, bold, brash characters, but I want to see more of those choices and more of that internality represented in what the actor is doing. And that's that's hard to do. I'm not saying it isn't, but I, I saw that more in Vox Lux than I did in Jackie. Yeah, it's a little jar. The Staten Island accent is like a little jarring, but like I still bought this person that she had created. And it's like a... I, and and I, I, I would say like, I mean, like it, it, I think it's a little hard to process because like that character is... I mean, like, because of that time jump, and it's like, so this is what this girl's become, and you got to kind of make that decision, like, do you buy this is where she would have ended up, and, like, I bought that all those issues she had in the interim would have actually been things that happened, so it's just a matter of, like, looking at, looking at her, looking at this finished product, and imagining is, like, is that, is that what she would have turned into? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand why she made the choice she did in Jackie, that's just not necessarily what I like. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, no, I... Like, in general, I liked Vox Lux a lot. Um, and I think my problems with it were more this could have been better than this was a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I would give it, like... I, I don't actually give ratings to as many movies as I should, but I would probably give it, like, a 4 out of 5. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I wish that the pop stuff was handled a little better. But it, I still liked it a lot. And I thought, first off, Bridie Corbett did a... Is it, so is it is it Corbett or Corbet? I heard Corbet on another podcast. So that's why I went with that. I assume okay. that that person knew better than me. I guess I could have like tried to research an interview with him or something, but I didn't bother. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. No. I I, uh, I I was actually pretty impressed with the way with what he did in the movie. Um, there were just especially that opening. Um, it was kind of weird it that, was, that 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 ambulance ride actually reminded me of the shot in Jackie. Not that I'm saying he's Pablo or or Lorraine or anything like that, but um, that I, I I was impressed with just like that entire sequence, how it was shot from the beginning up until they get to the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the coldness of that sequence was impressive in a very uncomfortable way. And actually, I would say a lot of stuff in the the, the first half, um, just the chaos and confusion of the world that Celeste finds herself dropped into. Um, like that sequence in, uh, was it Norway or Sweden? Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Uh, that sequence in Sweden, um, it felt, it felt like her confusion and like how lost she felt. I I thought Corbet did a very good job of capturing that and capturing that externalized into the world around her. Um, I'm, I'm also kind of a sucker for flashing lights and rave scenes, (laughs) um, like it's one of those like weird little things. It's like, okay, if you do that right, I'm into it. Uh, but there's a, a sequence where she's at kind of a concert in Sweden, and it's just kind of like the flashing lights on her face kind of cuts in and out as as the lights flash. That I I liked a lot. But that's just kind of like a weird little visual thing that like I'm into. A few other places that I've read have enjoyed that first half more. Um, like like you've said a couple people that you've talked to thought the same thing and i mean i i just think it's it's just very slick the way he pulls it off it um i think that i think that's helped by jude law like i kind of i bought that character i mean it's funny like i don't know exactly what what he's going for with the accent but i still bought that guy as a character and what someone like in that industry would be like Um, i wish jude law was getting like more supporting actor attention because he he does a great job with that character yeah i mean 
I don't know. I, I, I think it's funny. Like, I, I know we're trying to we're trying to wrap it up, but I want to ask you a little bit about this movie in the context of A Star Is Born because I think you you did say yeah. you enjoyed this more, but I think it's similar in that a lot of people like the first half of A Star Is Born a lot better too. Where like just like it's fun just watching a career take off like that. But what, what, if there's if there is one thing you can point to that sets this movie apart from A Star Is Born for you, uh, what would that be? Is it the execution of like just? simply the, the 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 side of the music business or is it something about just like uh, a pop star on the rise like going through some stuff and is that stuff just better laid out there in this movie so if i was to kind of simplify it i would say a star is born is a pop song that doesn't know it's a pop song um it like it plays with the authenticity of what it does it's it's country it's rock it's soulful music it's pop country. Um, it like everything in the movie. It feels slick and poppy and shallow in a way that I don't think the movie itself realizes it's doing. I don't. I don't buy the movie. I really don't. I. I yeah. I, I, Isn't I a lot like of that second half of that movie is like Bradley Cooper kind of echoing that, right? Where he just doesn't like that music. Yeah, but here's the thing. It like even the stuff that the movie is meant to kind of treat as like soulful real music i don't buy um and like okay. the emotionality of, uh, the emotionality of the movie i genuinely think that the main reason why people respond to the movie the way they do is matthew libatique um i i think the cinematography in the movie is fantastic but it's so slick and evocative that it kind of tricks people into thinking there's more to it than there is hmm. um I just I, I I don't buy the movie. I think it's uh it's shallow and manipulative. Whereas here you all, think that the you you think that music isn't like you don't buy that being great music here. Whereas here you don't think you don't think any of this music's good, but you think the movie knows that. Well, it's that, but also like the people performing the music. Like I think okay. that the movie treats uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga's characters as the real soulful musicians, even when kind of Lady Gaga's kind of, Lady Gaga's character is like. Will she continue to be that in the second half of the movie? I, it's still pop music to me, um, and I think the movie just feels manipulative in the way pop music is. I'm also, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Lady Gaga as a singer, um, like in in general. But I, just, I really, I, I think the movie is slick and manipulative in a way that a lot of Hollywood movies are, but. There are some movies that, like, a lot of the movies that are that slick were not supposed to take seriously in that way. I think this movie wants its cake and eats any, and it, it wants to have its cake and eat it too. And, and how, well, then, what do you what do you think Vox Lux, Lux does well in in turn? Then, do you think like it's just cynical in the right places? It seems kind of like what you're what you're getting at. I mean, yeah, like I, I more agree with its conception of of the music industry. Um, and with kind of pop culture in general, uh, whereas I don't with A Star Is Born. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I, I mean I obviously thought about A Star Is Born a little bit by watching that, but I guess in my head that the movies were just like trying to do different things. But I also I, I it's probably because A Star Is Born like it spells it out for you more too. It tells you how how you're supposed to feel about the music, um, especially in the second half of the movie. It's really a catalyst for a lot of what happens uh, with Bradley Cooper's character there. Whereas, whereas here, like my part of what I was thinking was that like I I didn't necessarily think the director thought this music was good, but I thought 
uh, or that Corbet thought this was supposed to be good music, but I thought maybe that that last performance, regardless of how we feel about it, how good we thought it was, I kind of thought that she was giving them, she was giving the people exactly what they wanted in that moment. Uh, regardless of how we thought about it, like she was giving the performance she was supposed to go out there and give, and that, that has made her successful, regardless of how good it looks to us. So I, my, my thinking was that, like, man, she, like, part of what like has made her turn into this kind of person is that like she regardless of how truly artistic she is because her sister is the brains in the family what she's had to learn how to do is to like internalize all this shit she's going through and still be able to somehow go out there and give that performance that the people want and it's probably not a very healthy thing and that was what did that that was what did stick with me in this movie is that like the price of like being a famous person like that is you got to swallow a lot of shit and that's the price of fame and I, and, I, and I've enjoyed talking to you about it, though, because it seems like that I, I like talking about the other stuff she was going through with regards to, like, how much of that genius she's actually responsible for. That can't help her mental health either, just knowing that in the back of her head as she is having to physically give herself over to that. Because we didn't even talk about the fact that she actually is still in a lot of physical pain uh, yeah. throughout the whole movie and very uncomfortable and pretty lonely at the same time on top of all of that. Um, yeah, and again – I don't want to say I wish we spent less time on burning because I definitely don't wish we spent less time on burning. But there's a lot to talk about with Vox Lux, too. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what Vox Lux come down to is the uh, the divide between art and content. Hmm. Um, and the, if there is something evil in the movie, it's what happens when we view content as art. Uh, and I think that's something that the movie explores in some interesting ways. Um, and that, that to me is kind of the center of, of her character. It's this, it's this person picked from obscurity by a tragic viral event who becomes anointed and famous in this way, despite basing her career on this creation of content. And I don't know, I, I, I thought that was interesting and that's, uh, that to me is more where kind of the satanic evil stuff comes in. Hmm. It's there is something evil about the way we kind of view this like content as, as the truth, as something truly more sublime or artistically meaningful than it actually is. Interesting. No, I, I, I totally get it, and I guess I, that, that was just, that, that was part of it that I, I, I was, I was a little more zeroed in on, the rant I just gave and getting to that point, but it is, it is interesting to think about like, just, I don't know. Like if you accept that this music just like, isn't good and how it's probably just not going to be a good thing. If we like, I don't know, prop it up any more than we should. And yeah, keep in mind, I'm also a pretentious asshole, but, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but, but like all joking aside though, like, I think that is, that, that is a good point. And it's, I don't know, like, I I, I kind of made the comment before we started doing this that, like, it seems like, hey, this guy, like, threw a bunch of shit against the wall and wanted to see what stuck, but I think, and you pushed back against that, and I think it it does kind of make sense in how we're talking about it, how, I mean, just uh, regardless of just how any good anyone thinks any of the mu- music is in this movie, I think do think there is more of a common theme than maybe I was giving it credit for, and, like, just how we, just how we kind of treat media consumption in general and how you can take some lessons from that. Yeah, I think whether... Whether like as you as an audience member agree with that or not, I think that's what Corbet feels. Yeah, and I mean, it's for for a general audience member, you can agree or disagree with with kind of the way he presents uh, the culture industry. But that's that is how he views it, and that's how he's 
mapping out both the world and Celeste's place within within like in it within this movie. Right. No, I got, no, I I agree. Is there? Um, I, I know you said there's a lot to unpack, but I think I, I think I think for the, like the five people that are still listening, we should uh, uh we, we should probably uh, wrap it up. But I do want to give give you give you a chance to like if you do have any parting thoughts on any kind of uh, odds and ends that we didn't get to that you do that you do have a final point you want to make on. So is there any is there anything about Vox Lux that I didn't touch on or ask you about that you think is important to note before we sign off? I mean, there, there there's definitely one thing I, I do think I, I liked the the use of was Willem Dafoe's narration. Yeah, because I I usually dock points from any movie for doing a voiceover, but I actually thought they did it. In an interesting this is a case where it worked. Yeah. Um, and normally I'm the same way. I really hate manipulative, needless voiceover. Mm-hmm. This was a case where I thought it added something, and I think it created an epic and more meaningful. Uh, context to approach the movie in because it kind of gave it this like kind of chilling more literary vibe mm-hmm. um also we'll put willem dafoe in most things and it gets better so. <laughs> no yeah like I, I thought it like i don't know a, a lot of movies just like use a voiceover to like tell you what's gonna happen and then like then they just like show you what happens it's like well why can't you just show me and not tell me at all and i thought that like it it just it added to things in a way like it he helped fill in blanks without like just explaining everything to you that you were already watching on the screen. And I thought it was, it, it was used in the right spots and I give it points for that because usually I, if I'm doing my letterbox reviews, I'll just dock a movie a, a half star as a matter of course. Cause I, most, most movies are pretty lazy with their voice of their use of voiceover. And I thought the Corbett was actually pretty thoughtful with it. Um, yeah, I agree completely. But yeah, so I, again, I think while, uh, we each have our own, uh, reservations about the movie maybe but like I think we both got enough out of it that we would definitely recommend anyone check it out if it seems like the kind of thing that would be interesting to you and like I like we just talked about it for like 35 minutes or whatever it was without like really giving away like a real spoiler or anything like I think it's a movie that like you can you can go and watch and like listen to the whole conversation we had and still watch it and get just as much out of it as you would have otherwise you know I think it, 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 it it's just like an interesting it's interesting to look and see how they pull it off but yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, Ben. Before we sign off, do you have anything? I don't remember if you have stuff you like to plug, but I normally like letting people plug stuff here, whether it be a letterbox or any other work you're doing. So, is there anything you want to direct people to? Um, yeah, I mean, nothing too much right now. Uh, I'm not the biggest social media guy. I do not have a Twitter. Uh, but if you want uh, my thoughts on movies, which I occasionally update sometimes, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm on there as Ben Lubin, uh, just my name. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, I have something that I'm hoping to be filming in the next few months that will eventually be available at some point but yeah i'll bet you i'll bet you you'll, you'll be back before then and then maybe you'll be able to then you can go into a little more depth on that at that point so but yeah for now uh yeah if, if you want my thoughts just follow me on letterboxd yeah ben has an enigmatic letterbox presence but i do every now and then he'll like weigh in with something like really funny <laughs> but uh as usual i'm like josh chernovoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y on both letterbox and twitter and uh but yeah, thanks everyone that's still stuck with us for these. And like, I, these are movies that are like not going to be like around for as long. So I, uh, if if you do have a chance to watch either of them, like I recommend checking it out. Even though we're about to get hit with like a whole morass of stuff as the holidays come through, these are certainly worth checking out. Um, especially Burning, it's going to be harder to find Burning. So like, if you have a chance to see Burning in a theater, I definitely recommend it. But uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, coming up soon, we'll have like plenty of stuff on all the holiday movies as well as like the Oscar stuff like 
Roma and the favorite and, or I might even put that one out first. So then you can just disregard this, but I'll do stuff on all the big stuff too, like Bumblebee and, um, and Mary Poppins returns. We, we do all the movies big and small here. So thanks for listening in and we'll see you next time.